Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. I'm your host, Violet Luca. Christopher Hitchens is one of the rare figures whose work has served as a touchstone for those on the right and the left. Though he's best known for his atheism, support of the Second Iraq War, what I would call Islamophobia, and droll oratory style, Hitchens' output in the 80s and 90s, for this and many other magazines, is far richer and more ideologically complex than a hitch slap compilation would let you believe. I spoke with Christian Lorenzen, and I'm a freelance writer. Luke Savage, I'm a staff writer at Jacobin Magazine. Mo Tasek, I'm a senior fellow at the American Economic Liberties Project. About the evolution of Hitchens' career, his savvy use of gossip, and the knife's edge between his virtues and failings. So I thought we could start off by acknowledging that Christopher Hitchens' best-known period, his celebrity period, is perhaps his worst period of writing. That's, that's up for debate. That's one of the things we can argue about. So could we, could we go back to the beginning and work our way forwards and sort of talk about Hitchens' intellectual and biographical foundations? Because he's somebody who came of age in the UK at a very particular time and arguably you might not have someone like Hitchens be able to emerge today because of sort of like the retraction of social mobility. So Christian, since you wrote the piece that the inciting (laughs) incident uh, for this podcast, could you discuss some of his his background and then other people can jump in? All right. So he is the son of an officer in the Royal Navy and a woman who I think was doing something like serving as a nurse in Scotland when he was stationed there. The officer and the nurse uh, later, you know, settled down and had, I believe, two kids, Christopher and Peter. Sometime in the 80s, Christopher learned that his mother had a Jewish background, although Peter Hitchens disputes that it was all that meaningful in her uh, Liverpool family. His father worked as an accountant in boys' schools. His mother demanded that Christopher be sent to a fees-paying or public secondary and high school because she said, if there's a ruling class in this country, Christopher is going to be a part of it. So he went to what's called a public school in England as a boarding student. Then on to Oxford in the late 1960s, where... He became something of a campus undergraduate celebrity. In Hitch 22, he recalls that somebody told him that you and this other guy who was another radical, Hitchens belonged to a Trotskyist groupuscule, are the most famous guys at Oxford. From there, he goes to Fleet Street, eventually joining the New Statesman, where he did both literary stuff and was a traveling reporter. Going around the world at times, I know there's a famous piece from Baghdad in 76 or 77 where he praises the new young star on the scene, Saddam Hussein. Oops. That was often (laughs) promoted as a, a part of his hypocrisy, but he would say that, you know, such things are inevitable. Um, he's writing in the New Statesman until the early 80s when I think 
through a connection with uh, his friend Alexander Coburn. He came first to New York and later to Washington as a columnist for The Nation, then becoming the Washington editor of this magazine, and then a columnist for Vanity Fair throughout the 1990s. During this time, he considers himself to be of the left, but therefore unaffiliated with either Republican or Democratic parties because he's a socialist and the nation had some kind of slogan that they were an unaffiliated magazine, but most magazines have such slogans. Nobody owns the nation. I think they still say that. Ah, yes. Well, I think it would be good perhaps to go back to this uh, groupuscule because I don't think in the United States there is, I mean, obviously there are elite institutions where you learn how to speak, how to present yourself, how to think, how to argue. However, in the UK, uh, it's a little bit more identifiable. And I think, you know, referring to what I was saying before about a celebrity period, perhaps one of the greatest impacts he's had on the life of public intellectuals, or at least people trying to be intellectual in public, is that he sort of gave all of those people a certain way of performing their intelligence. And I think perhaps you could argue that the the right's obsession with uh, debate me, you know, even the worst talksters on the right's obsession with debate and reason and all of this stuff, perhaps has something to do with Hitchens and his time at Oxford and being sort of part of this like very clubby kind of Oxbridge debate society scene and being a mini celebrity on campus. Luke, you wanted to say something? Well, just quickly uh, on the Oxford Union, I mean, this isn't directly about Christopher Hitchens, but um, for if we're talking about the uh, the rhetorical talents that that come from or or don't come, as the case may be, from uh, you know being in the Oxford Union. Uh, Mike Lignacheff, who, you know, of course, uh, you know, the, the one of the big essays in this new Hitchens collection is Hitchens' review of Ignacheff's Berlin uh, biography, biography of Isaiah Berlin. Mike Lignacheff, during his, I don't know, maybe four-year period as a politician in Canada, you know, famously messed up this debate and after, you know, a few weeks later led the Liberal Party to uh, its worst showing, I think, in, I think in history, at least since the 19th century. And it emerged afterwards that he uh, he refused to prepare for the debate and he told aides that he didn't need to because he'd uh, been at the Oxford Union, so he knew how to uh, do debating. Um, so, uh, Oops. Not perhaps a man with uh, <laughs> rhetorical gifts as um, as as strong as Christopher Hitchens. Um, what, one thing, uh, one thing I would, I guess, introduce into the conversation is that you know, for the reasons you set off the top, Violet. I mean, Hitchens is much better known in the worst period of his writing um, than you know are known the details of his earlier life or or even just his life before he became a, a british american journalist but it, in a certain kind of way the idioms and the the ideas that uh, were associated with him from quite early on were kind of present in this later period as well um not because he was still in any meaningful sense uh, or really in any sense any kind of socialist but because as far as political apostates go uh christopher hitchens is a you know, a very particular kind, you know, there's, there are uh, people who abandon their affiliation with a political party or an ideology and kind of say in effect that I was wrong to believe any of this to begin with, it's evil, etc. Hitchens was not one of those people. Uh, he was somebody who, uh, you know, and this really comes out in Hitch 22, um, 
was quite labored in his insistence that he, you know, he hadn't really changed at all. He was being, uh, he was being consistent. I don't remember the specifics of the passage, but someone brought up the favorable uh, stuff he'd written about Saddam Hussein. I believe that's dealt with in Hitch 22, and he figures out a way to make it consistent with his position in the in the early 2000s in some way, although I could be misremembering it. Regardless, he was, you know, he was very uh, insistent that, you know, he hadn't really changed his politics all that much. And so that made his turn against uh, the nation and his friends on the left very peculiar because, you know, he was always mining from the same kind of conceptual repertoire that he'd drawn on earlier. So, you know, when he was arguing in favor of you know, the war on terror, the invasion of Iraq, things like that, he would invoke Trotsky. He would talk about materialism, dialectical materialism, things like that. Um, and, you know, if he wasn't uh, if he wasn't doing those things directly, he was at least, I think, drawing on a very similar kind of uh, repertoire of, of ideas and idioms. So any, any discussion of Christopher Hitchens, even in his worst period, I think it has to grapple with the fact that you know, even though he broke very publicly and and uh, loudly with the left, he always did so while insisting that he wasn't really uh, he wasn't really doing that, um, and that you know having uh, champagne at the Pentagon with Paul Wolfowitz or whatever was uh, he was he was still working towards a global revolution or or whatever. I mean, I'm being a little bit unfair, but I think that's the uh, that's 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 the essence of it, and uh, I think it's uh, you know it's an important point about Hitchens, regardless of what period of his writing we're talking about. Absolutely, Maureen. I think that uh, when I was looking back, and I I didn't manage to get in a really like satisfying like I, uh, on a certain level, I wanted to answer. Um, the question of the mystery of the hitch vibe shift. And the reason I really wanted to do this is because I went back and I listened to no one left to lie to um, his Clinton book, which by the way, you know, has been sitting, I never read it. It has been sitting on my dad's shelves for 22 years or whatever. Never realized there was a verso book on my father. So he, my, my father's like this, incorrigible um ex-heritage foundation trumper <laughs> and uh yeah i had no idea verso published that book which is amazing um and i actually phoned up uh one christopher layman who was at the book party for that book and he said he had never quite figured it out himself but at the book party for that book which was held at kgb bar Lewis Lapham was sitting at the bar and said, hello, Christopher. And he said it was the first uh, time that um, Layman said it was the first time Lewis Lapham had ever remembered his name. Allow me to introduce you to this wonderful young lady, Ann Coulter. And he said, (laughs) Layman said that that was like his first inkling that like the vibe shift was afoot. So for sure, something happened there. Now, Hitchens was unbelievably prolific, obviously. And um, a lot of what he wrote went over my head. I enjoyed the Tom Wolfe hit piece. I really enjoyed his skewering of uh, Harold Wilson, someone I knew nothing about before. But he really brought it with that, uh, with No One Left to Lie To. Listening to it was completely nauseating. I felt as though 
Um, just like I fell in hate with Bill Clinton and the Clintons and the new Dems and, you know, the D trip and, and Schumer, I fell in hate with all of these people so hard. I didn't know, you know, that it would, it would be possible. And it's really illuminating on so many levels. So I highly recommend that like anybody, if, if you get any, you know, check out no one left to lie to a lot of Hitchens's audiobooks are self-narrated and he's a really terrible narrator but the guy who narrates no one left to lie to sounds a lot like Adam Curtis so it's like extra perfect <laughs> go out and get that one but it's also really unique to get that level of just total you know take no prisoners you know, like, again, it shook me. And I, I've been obsessed with, you know, the neolibs for, for a lot of my um, journalistic um, existence. You can't write that kind of thing and live in Washington. It doesn't happen. And I was looking through the clips and after it happened, you know, like a, a lot of people, there's, there's people like Glenn Greenwald, right? Who, uh, you know, sort of fit this. So like, when did he turn? What happened? Like, when did the Greenwald vibe shift um, uh, go down? What exactly precipitated it? And, you know, with Hitchens, strip out the existence of being very online, as they say, but like, he was so online. I mean, they just, it wasn't online. So he, they get, you know, he gets to get called like alive and, and, and all of these really vigorous adjectives, but like he was very online. He was incredibly um, and in, in kind of like a way that was obviously sort of self-defeating. And so right after he got the book deal to write the book, he uh, ratted out Sidney Blumenthal, you know, Sidney Blumenthal had been, you know, trashing Monica and, 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 and swearing to the DC press corps, all of his, his friends in journalism, that Monica was a stalker who was completely obsessed with Bill Clinton and that, you know, like she was just like a, like a mentally ill young woman and Hitchens admirably called him out and told, I guess, um, Ken Starr, I'm not sure who he told first, whether it was the press or whatever, that Blumenthal had been trashing Monica in this way and, and, and causing the DC press corps to believe, you know, something wholly untrue about the nature of her relationship with Bill Clinton. And that really precipitated a real campaign of blacklisting of Hitchens. At one point, Edward J. Epstein, who's like, I don't know, he just like, he's he like wrote a book about he wrote a really stupid book about the Warren Commission, I think um, he just kind of like pops up as like some sort of I, I feel like he bop, popped up when like DSK raped that hotel maid, but I forget like how um, it was in the New York Review of Books. Did he write that? Yeah, he wrote that. Yeah, yeah, yeah he pops yeah. up to do shit like that which is like trash the maid. So he told, started telling everyone that Hitchens is a Holocaust denier. And, um, well, that, that's because Hitchens had at some point kind of defended David Irving's right of free speech, but not, I think he said that Irving should be able to say what he says, but he didn't without necessarily defending his views. But although that's Epstein, often pointed out as a point of shame. 
Epstein like came out and was like, no, I was at this dinner where, where Hitchens literally said there's no way they could have killed like six million. <laughs> like, I just want to interject quickly that this this is such a great I love what you're talking about because it raises the the gossip element of Hitchens which is just such a fundamental part of both his personality (laughs) and of his writing and it's like again if it's like talking shit about Martin Amos or if it's talking shit about Sidney Blumenthal it's just like in the work and his uh, peripatetic uh, social charms and whatnot really gave so much to his writing and really defined it in a way again that you correctly identify as kind of like internet before the internet and that's what's so unusual about him right he was able to completely soak it up just be a fixture at like every dc party and then go write this book that was so much improved for him having been exposed to all that you know it's kind of like a just a a really devastating portrait of clinton and then clinton world and yet it was not something that he was going to get over. I listened to the book and I was kind of taken aback. And people in Washington, I mean, I lived here for a long time. I absolutely detest it. People in Washington don't celebrate. Like they, you don't write that kind of book and maintain your previous existence. And so it's very clear that the right, gave him a protection racket. And it's funny because the book is so much about Dick Morris. Like it really is. It's, um, it's, it's very focused on Dick Morris's influence in the Clinton White House. But whoever it was, whether it was Ann Coulter or Paul Wolfowitz or, or whatever, they formed some sort of cocoon that enabled Hitchens to continue to like thrive and be a person in Washington. And it didn't matter, you know, all the Clintonites sort of went, uh, you know, and sold out, whatever, and like did, like they they dispersed. Um, it would have been interesting, though, if like, the, the, the 2000 election had gone the <laughs> gone the other way. Um, you mean gone the way it actually did without this interference of the Supreme Court? Yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. But just having been here, I mean, I, I can just say like from my own experience, I mean, this is so middling, but I moved here during the um, the beginning of the Obama administration and the only people who would like hang out with me um, and I like drank back then, not like kitchens, but like I, you know, I wanted to like go out with people and I felt like it, I was just shunned everywhere and I was not anybody with any prominence, but I definitely had spent um, a lot of energy and text expressing my dismay and disgust over Obama's response to the financial crisis. And so that was the other thing that I really wish that that Hitch had like sort of focused his sights on. He did his best to skewer Michelle Obama's Princeton thesis, <laughs> but I never saw him really focus his sights on Obama's Clintonism 2.0 ideology, which was a shame. 
I agree. No one left to lie to is a, is a great book. And uh, I actually think that, you know, it's, it's most remembered in my experience, I guess this is just anecdotal, uh, as a book about Bill Clinton's treatment of women, which is certainly a, a, you know, a worthy subject. And Hitchens must have been the only person who was in a position or was able or was willing to uh, write about Clinton in that way. There's also at least one very important passage about Ricky Ray Rector, uh, who was, you know, this uh, severely disabled inmate that Bill Clinton uh, flew back to Arkansas in the middle of a caucus or primary to to execute for uh, for incredibly ugly and sinister reasons. Uh, and there's also some uh, really strong stuff about uh, welfare reform as well, which Hitchens uh, critiques very strongly from the left. And I think you're right that, you know, that that kind of thing was absent in how he wrote about the Obama administration. He often will bring up his pride in being the only one in some kind of Manchester, New Hampshire press gaggle in January of 1992, willing to ask Clinton about Ricky Ray Rector and that execution. That's something he brought up in pieces about Clinton from then on. Um... And I guess he, I, I, you might say he's the only one who will bring bo- up both that and Clinton's treatment of women, which would be a mainstay of, say, the American Spectator at the time. So he's the only one on the left doing that, perhaps. Um, going back to the question of his, what Luke was talking about, about how he was able to maintain that he hadn't changed, the the shift is a gradual one that I think goes across the 1990s and then comes into full flower after September 11th. And um, Maureen, you were talking about, well, what if, you know, what, what would have happened in a Gore presidency, which brings up several counterfactuals, including would 9-11 have been prevented? Would Afghanistan have been in- invaded? And would... Iraq have been invaded, none of which have certain answers. I mean, I guess you could maybe ask Richard Clark, but there are several rhetorical moves by Hitchens that happen across this time span that he uses to make sense of his political transmigration and how it how it wasn't a matter of renouncing his former views. Um, it begins, I think, with the intervention in Bosnia, where he'll often point out that he's happy to be for it because Henry Kissinger was against it. Uh, so there's a certain moral consistency there. Then when it comes to the post 9-11 landscape and the entire war on terror, he was the not the inventor, but the foremost propagator of the term Islamofascism, where the his support of the invasion allows him to argue that he is basically in line with the leftists and communists who were fighting in the 30s in the Spanish Civil War. And that that was the time when the left was against empire and against fascism and his views were now uh, congruent to those heroes, Orwell among them. Well, and I think, uh, you know, obviously his transformation, such as it was, began, uh, you know, earlier than this. But in terms of, uh, 
you know, the period of uh, his writing in which he was the most famous. I mean, God is not great, I think was really, you know, I don't think any of his other books. I mean, I'd be, I would be surprised if no one left to lie to sold, you know, 1% the copies of, uh, of God is not great. And I think that the new atheist movement, you know, which he became a leading figure in, um, I mean, I, I, I suppose that uh, it, had, it had been around for a while or versions of it, of it had been around for a while, but I think it really crested um, in terms of its influence and in terms of book sales, certainly for people like Hitchens and uh, Dawkins and Sam Harris um, in, in the wake of Iraq, because the, you know, the initial rhetoric of uh, the war on terror and, and the uh, invasion specifically had been that, you know, the Americans were going to be welcomed as liberators. And, you know, Hitchens, I think he wrote a, a mostly forgotten book. It was called A Long Short War, The Postponed Liberation of Iraq. I don't know if that's familiar to people. But, you know, there'd been a lot of very uh, kind of utopian rhetoric about how uh, both from from Bush and I think from, you know, intellectual apologists for the invasion as well about how there was going to be this great flourishing of, you know, Jeffersonian constitutional democracy in Mesopotamia or that kind of thing. And so when that didn't happen, I mean, there, there needed to be an explanation. And I think the, the new atheists were, were kind of readily able to provide one because, uh, you know, very soon the narrative turned to, uh, well, it's actually that, uh, you know, this part of the world is culturally backwards because there are all these backwards beliefs, which, which actually make it, you know, impossible for, or, or, or more difficult for liberal democracy to take hold and to flourish. So that aspect of Hitchens' transformation, which is, I guess, what we're calling it for now, is very significant. And I think that's where he started selling the most books. And um, to just repeat the refrain from the top, which I think is both uh, accurate and regrettable, I mean, uh, it was after God is not great, everything that came after that, the writing, and more importantly, the YouTube clips. That is how uh, Hitchens is largely known, I think, to at least one generation, if not two, of, of writers and, uh, and media consumers. I like that we're kind of getting into this right now, but I don't want us to just focus on this transformation because it's interesting. And you can certainly see threads of like, even in like, when he's discussing J. Edgar Hoover, he's making clear that religion is a part of this, of this regime that Hoover created of of this like of enforcing this very specific type of white Protestantism. But it's just such a fucking pointless distraction. I'm sorry. All of this yeah. talk about God is so fucking tedious. It just seems like <laughs> such an obvious <laughs> distraction from what's actually going on. When he's talking about J. Edgar Hoover, he at some point he says something about, you know, we can't get into this without getting into the ramified ganglia of Cold War morality. And I'm thinking the ramified ganglia, I mean, I fucking had to look up ramified, okay? He loves that word, by the way. It's like, it shows up. I'm glad I looked it up because it was very useful for reading all of his other uh, shit. But, you know, it's not the fucking morality that was interesting or difficult to circuitous or really that unique to behold, right? The review that he wrote of the book on the um, the miners' strike, I thought sort of got at the real issue, right? Like it, it's it's all just a big, you know, mode of distraction. And, 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 and Marx obviously understood that about religion. Being anti-religion is just as boring as being religious. <laughs> he does skate by that remark of Marx's all the time. 
And eventually he's constantly harping on the fact that in fighting against God, which admittedly he was pretty consistent over the years. I found columns from Harper's even in the 80s where he was going against any politicized religion or any intrusion of religion into politics. Uh, But he'd argue that in arguing against God and against Saddam Hussein, he was arguing against tyranny and in favor of liberation. To track back a little bit, because this just popped into my head, I, I can only remember one financial crisis column that he wrote, I think, in Slate, where he just talked about looking at his retirement account and noticing that it was a little bit smaller than it was a couple weeks earlier. <laughs> Uh, So it was not a radicalizing event for him (laughs) because he had had already, that was past his sellout moment. It was also a means of of, uh, maintaining his status as a contrarian once he, on matters of foreign policy, aligned with the Republican Party. He could say that he wasn't entirely aligned with them because, you know, he still considered the Christian right to be soft fascists. In supporting, say, George Bush for re-election in 2004, he said he didn't feel the need to apologize for all the positions he disagreed with. And I think the example he gave was stem cells, which was sort of a, like an, an evangelical... Hot button issue, yeah, yes. A, a religious yes. fundamentalist determined position that would later, I don't know, uh, certainly as a cancer patient, he would have been in favor of that also uh, a few years later. I will say, just having grown up in Iowa, where, you know, religion, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a given that you are a believer in the Christian God. And if you are not, you're in a very, you're in the wrong place that his intervention was again, awful, but it was also very refreshing. You know, it's kind of like this double-edged sword that runs throughout, or at least to me, of who Christopher Hitchens was, continues to be, is that it was so stifling to be not on a coast and to not be a religious person and to hear someone be like, you know what? No, here's a terrible argument for why there is no God. And yet, this is why we should not have those people running our country according to these these fanatical ideas. And I, I mean, it was just like in the aughts, the religious right was such a boogeyman on the left. And I think when people kind of let that drop off, that's kind of when we get to a situation where the plan to reverse Roe can really move ahead. Because, you know, I, I remember uh, uh, Jeff Charlotte wrote this piece about the family for Harper's, which was later turned into a Netflix special. And I saw people dismissing it as like, oh, yeah, you know, like, isn't that like a really old fear? Like, isn't that kind of stupid to be worried about? And it, like at that time, Donald Trump was president. He had the most amount of like very extreme evangelicals in his cabinet. He was appointing these like very extreme fundamentalists to to positions in the court, not just the Supreme Court, but to multiple layers of of courts. We see the we see what happens. We see the effect with that. And to like again, okay, so the argument that there isn't some guy with a big beard sitting in the sky, okay, that sucks. That's stupid. <laughs> or to deny somebody the the comfort that religion can give you in a time of need. That, that sucks and it's stupid. But fundamentally, uh, the atheism interjection was valuable and I wish, I wish it had continued. 
I wish it hadn't sort of fallen by the wayside. There, yeah, there's just a few things I'd say about that. I mean, I, I'm certainly uh, in sympathy with a lot of that in principle. What, what I would say about Hitchens, though, is I don't think that, I mean, certainly for me, um, and I may be overemphasizing this, but it's difficult to separate uh, the, the, you know, the atheism from the neoconservatism. I mean, I think both in terms of uh, the kinds of uh, the kinds of arguments he made, um, but also just in terms of why, uh, you know, why why a book like God is not great uh, sold so well. I mean, I think that um, certainly the, the 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 fact of the Christian right um, and its you know malignant influence was a part of that. Um, but I think that uh, the fact that it it kind of uh, helped create it helped establish. A, a liberal rhetoric, a liberal constituency around the war on terror. To me, I think that's the most that's the most salient thing about it. And, and I guess the other thing I'd say about it is that even though Hitchens was always very consistent in his atheism, I think it might have even been his brother Peter who said that the, the thing that he is most consistent about always has been not believing in God. I, I certainly think that's true, but I, I think that the the particularly kind of crude style of atheism that he uh, that he took up. It led to just a lot of very bad writing and a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of arguments that were not very sound. I mean, I'm forgetting what the context was, but I mean, there's a passage, I think, from the 2000s. Uh, it might even be from God is Not Great, where he's talking about um, Northern Ireland and he's referring to, you know, the conflict in Northern Ireland in relation to these like religious gangs uh, so, you know, that's just one example, but, you know, he, I think he did the same thing in, uh, in writing about Iraq as well. And, you know, in, uh, you know, there's, there's just, there's, there's the implication because, you know, once you decide that religion rather than politics or kind of material, uh, circumstances are the, are the root of, of conflict or the root of autocracy or whatever it is, you're really arguing. And, you know, it's ironic because Hitchens always insisted he was a materialist. You're really arguing for an idealist position where, uh, events are determined by the ideas that people have in their heads rather than, you know, instead of ideas having, you know, coming out of a particular political or material context, instead, uh, they're actually shaping uh, politics and, uh, and, and culture, uh, etc. And I just think that's not a very good way of explaining or interpreting a lot of current events, uh, whether we're talking about Iraq or the war on terror or Northern Ireland or, or anything else. So, I mean, my sense of Hitchens' atheism, like so much else about him, is that in a certain way, he did remain remarkably consistent about it. But as with so many other things, um, you know, about him, about his style and about uh, his kind of uh, ticks as a writer, you know, I kind of kept doing the same things, but, um, y you know, they just, they became less effective. They became more like uh, self-parody. His preferred metaphor, rather than the root of everything evil or nefarious, was that religion poisons everything, right? So it's almost like a, a secondary effect. However, I Ben Burgess's book came out, I think, in December, January, uh, about why Hitchens still matters, is very good on how uh, shoddy his arguments are on a theological level. I found that I agreed with them so much that I didn't even really want to bother treating them in my recent piece. And indeed, Hitchens' arguments about theology aren't very convincing. Where he is at his best, I would say, is when he's just doing stand-up comedy, where he's talking about how Tertullian describes the afterlife 
Uh, in hell, it's endless torture, all right? But in heaven, it's endless praise. Wouldn't that become boring even for God? That occasions a chuckle when I saw him at Cooper Union. But on the whole, it's a very boring shtick. And it just astonished me that he kept going on the road like an itinerant preacher doing this bit for years and years. I mean, I guess there must have been some money in it. Well, well, Christian, you, you opened your piece with that anecdote about one of his, one of his debates with Rabbi Shmuley, where say what you want about, uh, you know, whatever else you might say about Rabbi Shmuley. I mean, the theology around the afterlife that, that you capture that he offered Hitchens, uh, you know, at the beginning of that debate. Uh, I mean, uh, you can tell that Hitchens was quite uh, perplexed and I think deflated is the word you use in the piece because uh, because the theology that he was being presented with just was was a little bit more nuanced than his incredibly i don't know reductive and monolithic uh you know portrayal of 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 religion where it's just this you know literal very literal application of uh of scripture and so uh you know there's this more nuanced description of the afterlife and then he's forced to just insist well actually you know uh anybody who thinks about theology in those terms is just uh, is just not interpreting uh, religious belief correctly because the only correct way to interpret religious belief is entirely literal. Yeah, he is often undone in in these debates, many, many, many of which you can watch on YouTube still by uh, figures such as Shmuley, who has his other faults, but he's a, not a, he's essentially a liberal guy. Or Al Sharpton, who's at his best talking to Hitchens, I would say. Less impressive is someone like um, Dinesh D'Souza. His change, the, the arc of his career, his afterlife on YouTube, his participation in the new atheism. And basically, you know, he was on the road. He was like the Fran Lebowitz of atheism, right? He was just doing these big road tours. He kind of abandoned the volume of writing that he was doing before this. Do you feel like that switch or at least turning his energies towards kind of this roadshow thing was part of his foresight in seeing that publishing wasn't what it used to be. Oh, publishing was still pretty strong and still is kind of strong in terms of like its corporate outlet. He now had a big imprint of Random House, 12 books behind him. And it began with... um, a big advance for God is not great went on to hitch 22, which was another bestseller. And, you know, hitch 22 is significantly better book than God is not great. It has passages that I think are worthless, but his account of his mother's suicide going to Greece to get her body in the early seventies meeting on the same trip with WH Auden's partner, who's also bereaved Chester Coleman is quite moving. You know, it's a spotty book, but stylistically it's far more pleasing to me as long as he's staying off the current hobby horses of liberal intervention and atheism. A very interesting book. Another book from the late period that is quite good is Mortality because he's just, he knows, I mean, the book is left unfinished because he dies. And so he didn't lose it entirely, and he wasn't... Oh, no, I'm not saying he lost it. No, 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 I'm not saying that he lost it. But, you know, 
there's the the hitch slap, right? There's the moment in the debate where he really gets the person, right? He hitch slaps R. Emmett Terrell on firing line in 1984 plenty of times, too. So much so that William F. Buckley becomes tired of even talking to Terrell. And, and a three-way argument, unlike this one where we're all equal participants, <laughs> a three-way argument there turns into simply a conversation between Buckley and Hitchens because the other guy is just not, um, not pulling his weight. Yeah, they, the conservative movement was not sending their best. I've watched that. Uh, I've watched that clip many, many times, and it's uh, it's pretty enjoyable. <laughs> yeah, but it's on YouTube. It's on YouTube now because this is my because he because he his his performative nature, uh, uh, his ability to kind of pull that thing out and to make himself, you know, again perhaps because he had that background at. Oxbridge because he had the education that he had that he had just sort of like the bravado of being as Maureen was saying to, to go to these DC parties and then talk shit about everybody who was there uh, and still show up the next week and act like nothing happened I mean do you feel like that ability was because he sensed that you know and as Christian you you mentioned in your piece that literary journalism like this sort of has a shelf life and it's perhaps only of interest to people who are also interested in literary journalism and literary criticism, right? And this is like his way of perhaps transcending that, of making himself someone that would be of interest to many different people, sort of breaking out of the, the bounds of, say, you know, uh, uh, be, becoming a true public intellectual in a way that, you know, maybe someone like Susan Sontag was not. Because I certainly the people who are watching uh, him own whatever poor religious sap, uh, they they probably haven't heard of Sontag, but they've definitely heard of Hitchens, and they're going to seek out Hitchens. Well, I mean, there's a certain there's a certain genius to realizing that you can finally attach when you're writing to a very broad subject matter. Reading his columns, I sort of got an appreciation for he's a very dense writer he makes the reader work a little bit which i have fun doing but um he wasn't laboring over these columns i mean they were all kind of like you you can see you can sort of see the process like the the writing would be cleaner um it would be a little bit more accessible it would be a little bit less work for the reader if he had worked a little bit harder like he churned it out it was amazing like he was the same person um on the debate stage that he was on the page he was like the most glorious classic hack he was the most intelligent most well-read but you don't get the sense that he was going back and deleting entire paragraphs the way i assume other people do he had that consistency that a lot of people who are good at being drunk have i associate hitchens with cat marnell a lot where they're, they're the same person at all times um they're very consistent in persona and you know the person that they are on the page and you know i mean that's a little bit like fossil i don't think it's necessarily entirely true but he was a celebrity his whole life you know of on on whatever level the only you know the only magnitude that it was 
like it's possible to really appreciate celebrity and he happened to make a lot of money. And I don't think that the death of journalism or whatever, I don't think that any of that was that much of a concern to him. He would have been making a living for himself no matter what, especially in the United States. Hitchens might have had a little bit more competition if he'd stayed in London, but like in DC, holy shit, you know, he was going to be famous and that fame propelled him. But um, that said, everyone also, the biggest tax in the world, if you go back and read what they wrote in 1992, it'll blow your mind. Um, <laughs> Tom Friedman, all these motherfuckers were better in the 90s. So that's another, <laughs> um, that's another truth I just wanted to put out there because it's definitely true of Hitchens. Uh, Maureen, and I'm sorry, I have to bring it up now. But you were at Jezebel for the entirety of the Women Aren't Funny saga. So I fact checked myself because apparently that was published like as I was, as we, when we were still in like beta, (laughs) when Jezebel was still, I think it was almost like the first week that we started posting like behind a wall, like, cause we didn't. I feel like we didn't go live until April or May of 2007. I think that that was something that maybe put him on the map for our readership. It made it okay to write about what Hitchens was saying because he had said that women aren't funny. So everybody, like, no matter how dumb you were, you knew that about Chris Hitchens, which is really um, ingenious. I, you know, I, re- I finally reread that piece and... Um... I hate to come to his defense on this point, but he doesn't even really believe the headline. He doesn't even believe the thesis of it. You know, yeah. he's got a, a few nods to evolutionary biology and he cites some kind of academic study that he then proceeds to simply make fun of. But then the whole column, he's just quoting Fran Leibowitz and Nora Ephron. And I don't know, that column is better and more ironic than anyone gives it credit for. Basically, it was just like an example of they put this headline on it to get clicks. You know, that it was new then. It was like the beginning of 2007. People like you could do so much with traffic. Oh, God, I hate headlines so much. I know. I also reread that essay and um, and I also I reread the one that uh, that appears after it in the collection, arguably. Uh, and I just want to say, I mean, uh, in relation to the the new collection of essays from the London Review of Books, I mean, two things really struck me reading, uh, rereading Why Women Aren't Funny and also his review of Harry Potter and uh, whatever the last Harry Potter novel is called. You know, you notice in reading his pieces from the London Review of Books and then reading a collection like Arguably, there are a lot of stylistic similarities. You know, you find uh, there's this digressive quality, you know, where he kind of writes in a way that's very similar uh, to how he speaks. And I think he was even pretty explicit uh, himself on this point. I think it's Simon Hogart uh, at The Guardian, he credits with advising him to to write more like he talks. That great essay on on losing his uh, losing his voice, that and and certainly passages of Hitch Twenty Two among his later writings are um, are better and are you know stylistically um, you know on par with uh, with with the best of his earlier stuff. But in terms of you know his later writings, whether we're talking about why women aren't funny, or I just happened to read this. Uh, this this review of of, of um, the last Harry Potter book. I mean, re- I guess regardless of how we of what exactly you would attribute it to or or in what proportions. I mean, I just think that his 
you know, he's 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 riffing on kind of these these things that he used to execute with a lot more finesse uh, earlier. He's kind of going through the motions of these um, these earlier things. And, and the effect is never uh, well, it's never as effective to me. I mean, if you read you know, one of the essays, that I think the longest essay in the London Review of Books um, uh, collection that just came out uh, is this review of uh, Michael Ignatieff's biography of Isaiah Berlin. This has all, all of the Hitchens chops. You know, he's he's just, you know, darting from one, uh, you know, moment in history, one anecdote to another. You find these kind of, you know, quite eloquent discussions of, of you know, major events, you know, whether it's the Vietnam War or uh, something that happened in the Middle East, whatever, uh, you know, you find those kind of interwoven with these little bits of gossip, which are uh, tremendous fun. Did Berlin screw Isaac Deutscher out of a job, out of an academic job in the late 60s? Right. Da, 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 da. And, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, and which, you know, he it seems uh, pretty extremely likely that uh, that he did. did. Um, but he, he swore to Hitchens that he did not in, during his lifetime. Right. And, you know, I, I thought that that uh, essay, I mean, it's so effective as a takedown of Berlin. It's very withering and it's very polemical in places and it's very harsh, but it's still read to me like a pretty good faith critique of Berlin. You know, it's very harsh in many places, but ultimately the characterization of Berlin as this kind of ultimate middle brow intellectual figure as someone who's kind of a synthesizer and who borrows lazily from other people without really... Uh, you know, authoring any kind of, um, uh, you know, philosophical or intellectual innovations of his own. It's, it's all delivered very effectively and, and convincingly. There's that great line towards the end. He is the, here's the rich man's John Rawls. Liberalism is for those who don't need it, free to those who can afford it and very expensive, if even conceivable, to those who cannot. I mean, that's fantastic. And, you know, I think what, uh, jumping ahead to his later writings, I mean, you find... I superficially, anyway, I think a lot of similarities in terms of style and the, the digressive quality in particular, the kind of a personal angle that he brings to bear on so many things, you know, the, the kind of gossipy, uh, gossipy dimension. But in, in, reading, uh, in reading this new collection, I was just reminded how much more effectively he used to do it. And uh, I, I did not find that. I mean, I, I feel like I had a less charitable rereading of uh, why women aren't funny, and I don't know if anybody remembers the Harry Potter essay, but I mean, it's uh, just just to to give an example of why I brought it up. I mean, it only takes him. Uh, I think it takes him two paragraphs, or perhaps it's even in the first paragraph, to mention George Orwell, and then by the third paragraph, <laughs> no. uh, he starts to, he starts talking about he's talking about an incident in the book, and he immediately is just he's he's just doing the God is not great greatest hits. He says. Uh, as Hermione phrases it, sounding convincingly Kantian or even Russellian about something called the Resurrection Stone, how could I possibly prove it doesn't exist? Do you expect me to get hold of all the pebbles in the world and test them? I mean, you could claim that anything's real if the only basis for believing in it is that no one's proved it doesn't exist. Uh, and then he continues, for all this apparently staunch secularism, it is ontology that ultimately slackens the tension that ought to have kept these tales <laughs> vivid and, and alive. And you know, and, and and I suppose it's, it's it wouldn't be a bad point, except that uh, he just I mean, he can't resist. Uh, I mean, it's the weight he gives it. He leans into it so hard that you could forget that he's reviewing, um, you know, a, a children's book. And and I mean, really, a pretty uh, what from my memory is pretty minor uh, episode in it. Um, and so this to me is just I mean, it's a it's a tangential and 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 uh, you know perhaps not the best example, but I think still very emblematic of the way that he. 
uh, in many of his later writings, with the exceptions that we've um, that, that that have come up. Uh, you know, I think often stylistically uh, kind of does many of the same things and just does them uh, worse. And that that really struck me uh, reading these uh, these essays from the London Review of Books, which I thought on the whole were just much, much better than the stuff that uh, has been has been available, you know, at, at, at you know, local bookstores for the past, uh, you know, 15 or 20 years. I have to say, I think part of it might be that. uh he was writing home and also, I don't know, I imagine having worked at the LRB, I, ha- I imagined him really wanting to impress my old boss, Mary Kay Wilmers, and something that might have been true also of his relationship with Lewis Lapham in a way that it wasn't with, the say, the editors of Slate or The Atlantic. And I don't know. I don't know about Vanity Fair. Certainly, he was very close to Graydon Carter. But he, in Vanity Fair, he was under space restraints that he wouldn't have been at the LRB. Which would I know? There were certain writers there. There were and are certain writers there who don't have any word limits. His Vanity Fair work doesn't read like a man who's trying to cram a lot in. (laughs) The LRB essays are really a lot of fun. I mean, I don't like certain of them are, are, you know, his fucking thing for Thatcher is his little gross. (laughs) He he trots that bit out again about the, Oh my God. I know. She she spanks him, spanks him with the, with the legislative pamphlet. She, he loves it so much. He's such a fucking, like austerity piggy but like most of those essays um are 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 pretty fantastic a lot of fun and as you point out that they're written in good faith and i think that is absolutely the thing um that really struck me about um no one left to lie to is yeah reading hitchens in good faith reading hitchens um when he actually has real convictions about something or when he actually like, you know, when he actually did a, a, a little bit of research to figure out like, you know, how exactly he felt about something as opposed to just, again, like churning it out. He was really good at churning it out. He wouldn't have been successful as, uh, you know, he wouldn't have been Chris Hitchens if he couldn't churn it out. That's the thing. Well, yeah. I mean, I think Alexander Coburn used to, used to like to quote that New Yorker, food writer Liebling. Uh, I can write uh, faster than anyone who's better than me and better than anyone who's faster than me. Coburn would say that about himself and probably Hitchens too. It's funny. I don't think he lacked conviction on the, on either the atheism or the warmongering, but yeah. The Michelle Obama thesis piece in Slate is another example of what I'm talking about. I mean, uh, I think there was there were one or two sentences that I thought were pretty amusing, just in how uh, you know irreverent they are. You know, although I suppose Michelle Obama was a much less established figure in two thousand and eight, so you know, uh, part of that is just me reading it through uh, through the passage of time. But I mean, on the whole, it's just uh, it's just kind of. Um, you know, bad faith, and I think pretty reactionary piece. I mean, you know, is he seriously arguing? I mean, it seemed to me he's seriously arguing that you know Michelle Obama had some kind of uh, sinister attachment to the radical fringes of of black politics that is somehow you know coming through. And her her thesis, her bachelor's thesis, 
from Princeton is somehow evidence of this. I mean, that's uh, that's incredibly silly. Uh, I, I do want to uh, I do want to talk about the, uh, the the Maggie Thatcher thing a little bit more, just because I feel like it looms so large in the Hitchens mythos at this point. I mean, I've, he is, I think, largely responsible for that. But there's a sentence in Hitch 22. He says something uh, to the effect of, you know, it was around that time that he began to think about how, quote, if labor could not revolutionize British society, that the task might well fall to the right. And I, I have found myself in thinking about Hitchens' writing and in the turn he took around the you know, early 2000s, I found myself returning again and again to that passage and in particular that turn of phrase, um, if labor could not revolutionize British society, the task might well fall to the right. It's very similar to a line from his half-hearted endorsement of Ralph Nader from The Nation in 2000, where he says, if you care to know my politics, I'm an old socialist living fascinatedly through a time when only capitalism is revolutionary. That's right. And and it's also similar to something else you cited in your piece, which is the, uh, or I'm not sure if you cited it, but it came up in the, uh, in the Gulf War, uh, the Gulf War essay, which is in the, uh, the new LRB collection uh, where he's, he's, uh, he's mounting a, what I think is a correct criticism of an anti-war protest that he goes to. And he says, except for a fistful of Trotskyists, all those attending the rally in Lafayette Park last weekend were complaining of the financial cost of the war and implying that the problems of the Middle East were none of their concern. I found myself reacting badly to the moral complacency of this. Given the history and extent of U.S. engagement with the region, some regard for it seems obligatory for American citizens. However, and this is the, this is the key part, however ill it may sound when proceeding from the lips of George Bush, internationalism has a clear advantage in rhetoric and principle over the language of America first. And I think this is a really important point because, I mean, in context, it's a good observation. I think it's perfectly a fair one. But I think what you what you see there is, uh, and in the uh, passage um, about, you know, the, the, the Labour Party and the task of revolutionizing British society, you see there is Hitchens' uh, longstanding attraction just to uh, dynamism, you know. There's there's a need for there to be. He's he's always looking for some kind of uh, elan, for something revolutionary um, to to fixate on. And I mean, in that um, in that passage on the uh, the anti-war protest, I mean, what he's you know correctly observing, I think, is that the peace movement, uh, such as he saw it at least during the early '90s, really couldn't settle on a narrative or a critique of um, Desert Storm. That was, you know, anywhere near as pointed as, you know, the moral critiques that were made over um, Vietnam, you know, which he'd been to, uh, you know, he was, uh, you know, he protested the Vietnam War very, uh, very strongly. And so I, for me, there's a point at which in Hitchens writing, uh, the need for there to be dynamism of some kind, the need to find it somewhere comes to be the really guiding thing. And, you know, again, I, I hate to, I hate to uh, belabor this and, and carp on it, but this phrase about the task of revolutionizing British society. Um, that turn of phrase is just so striking to me because if you if you stop and consider the implications of how he, uh, of, well, of how he phrased it, um, you know, his in his formulation, you know, uh, the revolutionizing revolutionizing British society, uh, he's almost pitching as you know, it's a task that is. It's something that's autonomous from what the ideological character of the revolution is going to be, right? Uh, he say, and 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 you know, secondly, um, the fact that he speaks about it as a task to me has kind of a there's a 
there's a subtext of a, of a kind of inevitability there, which I think is, you know, makes sense when you consider that Hitchens was someone who, you know, came up in and was politicized um, at a time and, and in, a, in a milieu, a uh, particular uh, part of British Trotskyism where, you know, history was understood to have a kind of teleological trajectory. You know, there's uh, there's a there's a there's a historical process, um, and uh, and at, and at a certain point you arrive at the big revolutionary moment. You arrive at um, world revolution, and I, I'm not sure he ever uh, abandoned some version of that. I think the basic structure remained. He just realized after the 1990s, realizes maybe the wrong word. It's maybe too um, too conscious in its implications, but. At a certain point, I think it, he became unable to sustain, you know, the the same uh, the same affiliations and the same allegiances uh, when socialism as a global project um, had had collapsed, and where instead you had, I mean, in a completely non ironic and and serious fashion, you had you know a whole host of of influential people in the 1990s uh, using phrases like the end of history. Um, so you know, if you were somebody who uh, had been guided by an attachment to to dynamism uh, in in your writing and in your um, you know your ideological preferences. You know the lack of dynamism on the left is going to be a problem for you. And at a certain point, unless your convictions are very strong, you're going to find it somewhere else. And I think that's something that uh, we see in our own time uh, as well, frankly. And it's something that um, I mean to a certain extent as a left-wing writer myself in a you know decidedly not left-wing time I have a a certain sympathy for I mean I think that ours is just an era of as much or maybe slightly less but um analogous in some ways at least we could debate how much to the 1990s just in being without much of a sense of romance or or grandness or struggle or, or progress or possibility and so uh, when that happens, uh, there's a strong attraction, and I think some people have succumbed to it since 2020 in particular. Um, there's a strong attraction to, uh, you know, you want to find dynamism somewhere. And so I think, you know, some people drift into uh, religion, some people drift into nationalism in a sense. Um, I mean, you know, Hitchens, uh, H- Hitchens drifted towards the latter, and in, in the present, I mean, you see people on the right in these kind of post-liberal currents um, are drawing on on both because even though there's a malaise, I think similar, I mean, the, everyone's running on empty to some extent. Um, you know, there's a, there's a similar malaise on the right as well. You know, the right does offer people the possibility of some kind of foundation. You know, you can find it in extreme nationalism or, or uh, you know, the, all these kind of bizarre cases of people converting to, you know, really orthodox uh, forms of Catholicism or whatever. And I think, uh, and I think that, uh, you know, unless you're, unless you're uh, very strongly uh, intellectually grounded and your convictions run very deep, that can be a really attractive thing to do. Um, And I think that uh, in one way or another, uh, to me anyway, that is what Hitchens succumbed to. And it's also the thing that in many cases made his later writing a lot less interesting. I just feel like that's a really good point, and I hadn't really thought about it. That you you just made a lot of things crystallize. The left, in as much as it existed in two thousand in the United, you know, in America, um, deserved exactly what it got from Christopher Hitchens. Quite frankly, like when I when I think about it that way, like I'm I'm sort of with him, and there was no way to be on the left. Everyone sort of came i mean there was tom frank I there was think. also alexander coburn noam chomsky lewis lapham at this magazine 
where Tom Frank was also writing quite a bit. Um, I, I mean, but there, but there were these all these people. There was a lot of defense of uh, a lot of these people defended Bill Clinton. They, you know. Oh, I mean, I mean they, yeah. Look at the New Yorker, like Clinton, Joe Klein's cover story at probably January two thousand one had an illustration on the cover of the New Yorker as Clinton as a cowboy riding off into the sunset. Um, I guess the, no, what I'm saying is that like they didn't see what is kind of made clear in No One Left to Lie to, but this is something that I've watched every two years. The, the Democratic Party do over and over again, which is stampede over any force bubbling up that isn't explicitly and happily neoliberal. And the way that that has intersected so insidiously with the age of the woke police, right? And and the failure on so, like of so many to to really recognize how insidious and how counter productive and alienating and, and neoliberal a force, whatever, like woke cancellations and all of that shit are, the way that this kind of just happens in American left thought and discourse over and over and over again, it does make it an exceptionally um, bleak and non, you know, dynamic place, even when people are talking about, you know, labor unions and, nationalizing things now you know there are words that never were invoked in in the y2k era but at the same time the dynamism does um feel completely lacking i think going back to what you were saying earlier about the problem with castigation cancellation etc is that it's limiting discourse and perhaps, and because you have a limited amount of characters and because the Twitter algorithm works in such a way to provoke argument. Provoke inane argument. Provoke completely, you know, provoke only like the silliest, most degraded, most beside the point, most like completely just discombobulating form of, I don't even know, it's to it's 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 it, it provokes a, a pang of unpleasantness in your gut, and when there is somebody a little different or a little bit more dynamic, or who wants to sort of, you know, think things through, and and I don't know, maybe not be a contrarian, but um, like entertain contrarian views or uh, shoot them down. And I think that like the thing about Hitchens. Um, reading his early stuff is that it's, a, it's just a very potent reminder that um, the left or liberals or some toxic conspiracy of left of the left of the highbrow left or the, you know, and the middlebrow left and then just like straight up fucking K-hive libs. Some conspiracy of those things drives interesting dynamic thinkers um, who can handle their liquor way better than than I ever could away, you know, and, and I think that's bad. I, I like dynamism. You know, a sort of uh, the median middle brow current affairs writer, I think, was better for a variety of reasons before the current moment. And I think to some extent you can ascribe that to, you know, the rise of things like social media, the fact that the culture in general, because of things like social media, has less of an attention span. 
um, et cetera. Or the, or the abandonment of print, many publications not being native to print, where you ha- simply have more rounds of editing. Yeah, I, I, I certainly I certainly think all of those things are, are true, but but I would but just also the rise of the take as a mentality. Yeah, which as... and the, with the take. Right. And the take being something that is very much implicit, I think, you know, it comes with social media, it kind of comes with the the medium itself. But but I mean, what I was going to say is that I, I do think, um, you know, even though it, it is it is kind of the ultimate cliche to kind of wistfully speculate that, you know, in 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 an earlier era, you know, in the before time, things were more heroic or were more infused with grandness and opulence and romance or whatever it is. I, I do think that uh, there is something qualitatively different about our own time, going back to the, the 1990s, you know, to, uh, to to bring this back to, to Hitchens and, and kind of his transformation. Um, you know, it, there is something qualitatively different about our own time. And I, I think the malaise is, is, is a very serious one. I mean, if you think about earlier moments that might be broadly considered analogous to the present one, the Great Depression, for example, Moments where crisis and instability um, and uncertainty were kind of features of, of daily life. I mean, I feel like in a moment like the Great Depression, those things tend to yield a lot of innovations in, in, in a lot of different fields. Right. You have like you don't you don't have uh, you don't have the take being invented. You have whole literary genres being innovated or subgenres, at least in politics. You have the invention of the welfare state. You have the 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 application of, of Keynesian techniques and economics. And I mean, could anybody reasonably argue that uh, in in the current moment, uh, you know, uh, crisis and uncertainty are yielding? innovations of that kind are we we're, we're not inventing new ideological frameworks new modes of literature whatever we're inventing the take <laughs> i think it might be too soon to tell i th- suppose we have to deal with one last counterfactual i encourage your most takiest take on this one to be within the spirit of the times woke kitchens yes or no oh yeah woke kitchens <laughs> um i think that uh I imagine that he would enter into some kind of um, into some kind of battle royale with the woke, claiming that he was in fact woker and had been for longer than they had. I can't imagine who his contestant would be, but I mean that's kind of like his his argument about Paul Wolfowitz was that he was really a bleeding heart liberal, more so than the so-called leftists who wouldn't raise a finger to put Saddam Hussein out of power. Yeah, I tried to think on the woke Hitchens question myself, and instead all I could think about was, uh, you know, a column Hitchens might have written in 2016, uh, you know, uh, amid the rise of Bernie Sanders, um, you know, decidedly unwoke one. I mean, yeah, I, f- I feel like the, I, I can almost picture the prose in my head just as I say that, you know, notwithstanding the many vulgarities of Mrs. Clinton, it's regrettable that the perpetually provincial American lefts, blah, 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 blah. Uh, and then he would say something about uh, he'd make a he'd make a cheap crack about Bernie's Brooklyn accent or something. And uh, he would have celebrated Bernie for supporting Medicare for all. And he would have said it was regrettable that he supported the Sandinistas or uh, or and was against the uh, invasion of Iraq or something like that. Well, yeah, there was. I mean, 
Bernie, I do believe, supported some intervention in the former Yugoslavia, which caused Alexander Coburn to call Bernie the machine gun toting socialist in his many anti-Bernie columns in the nation. Hitchens might have gone with Bernie just because he was against Hillary. And that, I think, would have really amused that, that he would have been too good to be true. Yeah, exactly. That's what. Yeah, he like, Hitchens would absolutely have gotten behind uh, Bernie. Um, it, it's just, I mean, against Hillary, there's no, you know, there's just no question. I say uh, he would have been re-energized by Bernie. He would have apologized for the Islamophobia, and he would have been lefter than left. But I don't know for who. Because, again, the, the question of money, I mean, for whom? For who would pay his fees? He's, he's used to fucking Graydon Carter Vanity Fair holiday party money. Well, see, I don't think that would have been a problem for him because uh, one thing about the current landscape is that even though often, you know, you can't make as much money, uh, you know, writing pieces as you used to, I mean... The internet also does for a select few anyway, and certainly if you're Christopher Hitchens, I mean, you're going to be able to have a platform. Spotify podcast Hitchens? He'd have a, a, hit, <laughs> a, a Patreon Hitchcast, you know? I was going to say, I mean, I think I think he would have a number one, you know, Substack or something like that. Yeah. Um, I mean, I will I will say just, I think it came up once already, but, um, you know, I, wa- I want to include just a, another shout out to... Uh, Ben Burgess's book, uh, his recent book, which I which I blurbed. I mean, I feel like we've been very critical of Hitchens throughout this discussion. I think Ben in Christopher Hitchens, What He Got Right, How He Went Wrong and Why He Still Matters, which came out earlier this year. I mean, I think he does a pretty admirable job in excavating, uh, you know, the best of Hitchens. And I also think, uh, you know, this this LRB collection, which is, is uh, alarmingly difficult to get or frustratingly difficult to get. Um, it seems like it's out with a small press. Um, but you know, I think it's out with Grove Atlantic or maybe Atlantic Books in the UK. Well, I would I would highly recommend it for for people who are who are tired of, uh, you know, trying to flip through collections like and yet and arguably for, you know, one or trying trying to salvage one or two bits of memorable prose, because everything in this collection is is much much better and uh, and much more memorable. The last thing I'll say in this discussion is it's it's so regrettable. I mean, one of the tragedies of Christopher Hitchens really is the thing Violet said off the top, which is that he is known for he's known most strongly for the period in his life when he was broadly speaking producing the lowest quality writing, the lowest quality ideas, and in which in some cases his reputation was becoming increasingly divorced from the thing he was best at, which was prose. You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Madeline Crum, with production assistance by Ian Montgani. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org slash save.